Oh, would you turn with me, please, to Colossians chapter 1. Welcome, for those of you who are with us, visiting. We're glad you can rejoice in this glorious name of Jesus Christ this morning. We sing His praises because we love Him. Because He went to the cross and bore the burden of our sin away so that we can rejoice. Let's read together our text, Colossians chapter 1, and then we'll pray. Beginning in verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Let's pray. We do rejoice, and we praise your name. For you have forgiven us a great debt that could never be repaid by us. And so we, our feet ought to barely touch the ground. Even in the midst of suffering, we have the greatest of treasures. We have the pearl of great price. And he was willing, whatever the cost might be in this life, to gain Christ and to go on into an eternity with him. Because without him is living death, eternal death. We know that's what we deserve. But you've reconciled us to yourself. Oh Lord, this, our hearts are deceitful. And we can be lured away from true faith in you. And we can think that just because we're here in church and we believe about things about you that, well, that means we're saved. Oh, Lord, give us ears to hear this morning. We have some difficult truths to work through, but it's all said in love. Help us to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. So Halloween is approaching, right? That time of year when just average folks on your street are going to spend a whole lot of money adorning their houses with all kinds of things. You know, these larger-than-life skeletons and inflatable characters and all kinds of gruesome animatronics and decorations to give people, you know, that, that creepy feeling that I think people just, they enjoy. According to one article I read, Nearly 70% of consumers were expected to celebrate Halloween last year. 70% of people with money to spend were going to celebrate Halloween and they were going to make, this was the projected spending on, on, a, on a Halloween, $10.6 billion. That's billion with a B. And that was up $500 million from the previous year. Apparently, a lot of people really like to feel scared. They watch scary movies. They tell ghost stories in the dark. They go to haunted house attractions so zombies and monsters can you know, jump out from around the corner and make them scream. 
why do people do this to themselves? One cognitive neuroscience professor thinks it's all about how your brain makes you feel. A flood of fear paired with the the relief of of safety, it can release naturally occurring opioids like endorphins that signal pleasure along with then that hit of dopamine which is a chemical linked in the brain to to the brain's reward center. In other words, being scared can be addictive. You're addicted to being scared. You like how it makes you feel. That being said, I don't know a single Christian who finds any pleasure really in hearing what may be the scariest words our Lord ever spoke. I never knew you. Depart from me. What makes those words so scary is Jesus said he's going to say that to many who expect to enter heaven. These words, they bring home the sobering reality that many people who think they are going to heaven when they die are not truly saved. They have fooled other people. They have even fooled themselves. But they have not fooled God for whom there are no secrets. There are no hidden places. And the Apostle Paul is aware of this. He knows there that there are professing Christians who would say they believe in Jesus, but don't realize that their faith is false. I'm being careful because I know if I look up at you when I say false faith, you're like, is he talking to me? No, I'm just looking around the room. I have no insight into whether your faith is true or false. So don't think that way. I just don't want to look like this the whole time when I preach. So I look around. But if it connects on some point and the Holy Spirit convicts you, that's, that's the Holy Spirit. It's not me. knows that people don't realize that their faith is false. And this is something that is regularly taught in the New Testament, which tells you that this is not only a real problem, but it is also a genuine concern. It is a real problem that people's faith in Jesus is not genuine, even though they think it is. And on that day, God's response, hear this, God's response on that day that we're talking about here with this statement, it's not going to be, ha, you thought you were saved, but you weren't, and I knew it all along, but it's too late now. Depart from me. Sometimes that's the way we hear this, like it's some trick. The fact that there are several places throughout Scripture that God warns people that their faith in Him can be false, it makes it clear God wants to alert us. He wants to alert us to the characteristics of both true and false faith. God tells us about both of them. And then He says, test yourself. Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourself. 
And God's not trying to infect your faith with doubt. That's not what He's trying to do. He is graciously testing you. Think about how we learn. We, we listen to those with knowledge, with understanding of a certain subject. Right? And then, and then they give us assignments. They give us practice problems. They give us quizzes. What is all that about? So that we can see if we've actually understood what we've been taught. God does the same thing. He teaches you about who He is. He he tells you what He has done in the Gospel and what happens when you get saved. What it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And He gives us plenty of homework assignments, doesn't He? Plenty of pop quizzes and tests where we see if we have really heard Him. We really believe Him. Like when He said, He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Prove yourselves doers of the word. Not merely hearers only who delude themselves. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do what I say. And many people, on that last day, they're going to say, wait a minute, you, you meant that? And in that day, you'll remember all these assignments that were meant to help you and show you and reveal to you the state of your heart and and whether or not it was truly regenerate and producing the fruit of salvation, obedience, love, self-denial. He wants to make it clear to you right now whether or not you truly know Him and are following Him because we see the worth of Him And whether we are still loving the world and loving ourselves and living for ourselves and fooling ourselves. While the reality of false faith is in view in in our text here, it's in view. Paul's main purpose is not to talk about false faith, but the characteristics of genuine faith. But to talk about one often leads to talking about the other. How can this happen, though? How how could it be that people can convince themselves that their faith in Jesus is real, that they're going to heaven when they die, and yet be wrong? One reason is because far too many churches have allowed the people there. They've allowed them to think that salvation can be reduced down just certain practices. You got a Bible. You read it every now and then. You pray when you have a need. You go to church regularly. You give financially to the church. You don't drink. You don't smoke. 
You don't chew. You don't go with girls who do. All this kind of stuff. Just all this kind of stuff. Just, just that's what salvation is. Paul doesn't touch on any of that here. He wants his readers to understand that what identifies a faith as spurious, false, fake, what he says here in verse 23. It's that you don't continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast. Is this not what we have been seeing in the church at large over the past several years? Professing Christians turning away from faithfulness to Christ, even renouncing their faith or, or in the buzzword of today, deconstructing their faith and in stating this here, where Paul does, right after, right after talking about Christ's sufficiency in reconciling the sinner, then he surfaces this sobering truth. But this sobering truth is not about God. It's, not, it's about our wicked hearts. Not, not only are we capable of fooling others about the genuineness of our faith, but we are willing to fool ourselves also. And the characteristic of a false faith that Paul is pointing out here is that those with a false faith do not continue on in the faith. You were never one of those reconciled people. You just thought you were for a while. Paul's main point, though, is this. Christ can save you forever. That's his main point. Christ can save you forever. In fact, all who Christ saves, He saves forever. I may have started off here you know, speaking about something very sobering and maybe even a little bit unnerving for you, but what I want to speak to you ultimately about is very wonderful. And very encouraging. The title of this sermon is The Sufficiency of Christ to Save You Forever. That's the title. The Sufficiency of Christ to Save You Forever. And that's glorious. Those whom Christ saves, He saves forever. And He will never let you go. And we should all rejoice that this is true. And I'm going to tell you why this is true. Why when He saves you, He saves you forever. It's because the Spirit of God powerfully transforms you and He makes you a new creation in Christ. He fundamentally changes your nature. He washes you. He purifies you. He renews you. And He says of the believer in Christ, I will put My laws into their minds. I will write them upon their hearts. God transforms your heart. It's the core nature of who you are such that you now have a heart where the Bible says that you will walk in God's statutes and you will be careful to observe God's ordinances. That's what God does when He saves someone and that's why they continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, never moving away from the hope of the Gospel. Now, let's remind ourselves of a few things first about this passage, right? We're in Colossians because here Paul proclaims the glorious supremacy of Christ over all things. And knowing this, 
Christian, this is the key to your growth in Christ. It's why you should center your life around him. And Paul is, he's declaring the supremacy of Christ to the Colossians. He's doing this because false teachers have come into the church. They're denying the humanity and the deity of Christ. They're calling for the worship of angels. They're saying that salvation is possible only by secret knowledge that's beyond the gospel of Christ. And so in response, Paul is declaring Christ's supremacy as God, as the uncreated creator of all things. He's supreme over the church. He's supreme over the dead. And the reason why he's declaring the supremacy of Christ is to be able to assure the Colossians, not only of his sufficiency to reconcile them to God, that's what we looked at last, but now he says his sufficiency to save you forever. And in this, I'm going to give you another reason to center your life around him. He can save you forever. But before we talk about how Christ forever saves those who believe in him, I first must ask you to understand something that's very important, kind of keyed off of here initially. I need you to understand that faith can be false. Understand that faith can be false. Now, just like it wouldn't be fair for a teacher to test you on material that they haven't taught you, God is not hiding what genuine saving faith consists of. He tells us so that we can examine ourselves and see if our faith is indeed genuine. You know, of all the marks of a genuine Christian that that Scripture presents to us, one of the most significant is what's here in our text. The evidence that you are truly reconciled, that God has reconciled you to Himself through Christ's death, is that you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast. The repeated testimony of Scripture is that those who are truly reconciled truly saved by Christ, well, they'll continue on in their faith. Scripture also testifies that those who fall away and don't come back to Christ, well, they give evidence that their faith was false from the start. They were never truly saved. They may have looked like a Christian, They may have talked like a Christian. They may have acted like a Christian. But they were never truly saved. Why? Because they left and didn't come back. And we need to understand that Scripture says faith can be false. Jesus is the one who warns about false faith. One of the the places where he really lays this out for us is in the parable of the sower. I'd like you to turn there. Turn with me to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. No. We see it there uh, beginning in verse 5, 4. Parable of the sower. I'm just going to summarize the, just how he tells the parable. Uh, The parable of the sower, it concerns a farmer who scatters seed. And as he's scattering it, it falls on four different types of ground. 
falls on the hard ground that's just right there beside the road. It, that hard ground, though, it prevents the seed from sprouting at all. The seeds just become nothing more than bird food. The stony ground, well, it, it does have some soil to it. And the seeds that fall upon the soil, they germinate, they begin to grow. But because it had no moisture, the plants don't take root and soon they're just withered by the sun. The thorny ground. Uh, it also has soil that's sufficient for there to be growth, but the surrounding thorns in that area, they just choke out the life of the good plants. And then lastly, the good ground. He says, probably where he's really aiming, right? The good ground to throw the seed onto. Well, it the seed germinates and it produces fruit. Not just some, it produces much fruit. So as Jesus explains the meaning then of the parable in the verses that follow, he highlights four different responses to the gospel. First response. I would call this the hard heart. This is the hard heart, verse 12. This is Jesus explaining his words now. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and he takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. So these are people who heard the gospel, thought about it, and I would say they didn't outright reject it. Maybe they did, but it's not really that's not the point. They didn't they didn't just, you know, get out of my face. They they thought about it. They heard it, thought about it, but but what's key here is that the devil comes in, he misdirects, he confuses them. But just to say something about this, the way Jesus is telling this parable here. The gospel, as we well know, it is going out over all the world, all the time. The devil is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere where the gospel is going out. So Jesus is not attributing this outcome here solely to the devil. But the Bible also is clear that man's heart is not naturally inclined to receive, but to reject the gospel. Right? That's why I'm calling this the hard heart. So apart from the Spirit's work, the natural mind is hostile to God, it's darkened in its understanding, and it will see the wisdom of the gospel as foolishness. Eh. Foolishness. Foolishness. And so even though they're not overtly against it, like, hey man, that's good for you. That's good for you. They're not compelled to respond. And their response to it is just going on with their lives. So that's the first response. It's a hard heart. The second response, I'll just call it the unchanged heart. Now, again, these words aren't perfect. They're not. I'm sorry. I'm offering a little explanation so nobody gets the wrong idea, right? To call this the unchanged heart, well, everyone who rejects the gospel does so ultimately because their heart is unchanged, unable to receive the gospel. But see, in this response, there seems to be a hint that I think a change has taken place, when in fact, no change has taken place. So this heart is unchanged. Look what he says in verse 13. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. So in this case, there's some soil for the seed of the gospel to take hold. 
This is evidenced by the hearing and the responding positively. You know, maybe they respond to some kind of a gospel imitation in a church service, or they, you're talking with them on a street corner, or they're talking with friends who know and love Christ, and they, you know what, I, I want to pray to receive Christ. I want to pray right here and, and, and receive Him as my Lord and Savior. And Jesus likens this response to a seed, where, where a root emerges from the seed, and it begins to go down into the soil which Jesus describes here as receiving the word with joy. Along with belief that takes hold, that seems to last, but only for a while. It lasts, but only for a while. And that joy that was born in that initial trust, well, it only lasts until it comes up against some kind of a temptation, after which they then fall away. They no longer adhere to what they initially received and took joy in and thought to be true. And they walk away. Why? Because there was no firm root. There was a root, but that root could not be sustained in the shallow and the rocky soil upon which that seed fell of their heart. So even though they initially responded with belief and joy, it didn't last. And they fell away. They they heard something in the gospel that appealed to them. Forgiveness. Hope, escape from hell, blessing, fix my marriage. They said they wanted to follow Jesus. But then temptation came right in, right? And they found that they were ultimate they were unwilling to forsake worldly friends, unwilling to forsake an immoral relationship. No, I don't want to deny myself. Um, you know what? Christianity is actually more of a burden than a blessing here. So what did they do? They forsook Christ. Their faith was only temporary. And temporary belief cannot save you. And so this person was not saved. They fell away. They did not they, they weren't saved and then they fell away from faith. They were never saved in the first place. That's Jesus' point here. From the beginning to the end of their temporary faith, their heart was unchanged. third response. The third response is that of the unfruitful heart. Verse 14. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. And so the seed fell on soil that was surrounded by prickly plants, thorns, maybe like thistles. If you know thistles. You can't even touch a thistle. You, get, you even look at a thistle and it's like, oh, I got something in my finger and I can't even see it. It's, it's weeds like that. They just grow everywhere. And so there was clearly some initial growth. It says there was. But that spiritual growth, it was not sustainable amidst the many weeds and thorns and stuff that was all around it. The pleasures and the pressures of the world, they kept what little growth was there from ever bearing the fruit of salvation. So there's a sense in which the second and the third soil are very similar, but one falls away, I think, a lot quicker. You know, they have joy in their response, but then, you know, they're just, I'll, I'll see you on Sunday, and, you know, they're, they're not there. <laughs> and you never see them again. This is the person who's been around a while. There's been time to, to see some 
growth and what looks like growth in them. They're, they're hanging around. They're coming to church. But then these worldly pressures begin to weigh upon them. Pleasures denied begin to eat away at them. That initial belief and the nourishment, that's what's getting consumed here. And so it's not bearing fruit. And they're thinking, you know what? My life didn't get better. I thought my life was supposed to get better when I accepted Jesus. You know, ever since I accepted Jesus, my life has got harder. You know what? I've been praying. And I don't think God hears me. I don't see any evidence that God hears my prayers. And you know, the friends that I had, they don't want to even talk to me now. You know what I get from my church friends? My church friends? Critical looks. Judgmental. They don't come and help me. They just criticize me. Tell me examine myself. And so once again, there's a kind of an initial response that would suggest life. But the absence of fruit proved there was no life in the end. Like the other two soils, this represents someone who had a measure of belief, but the pressures and the desires of the world ultimately had a greater impact on that person's heart than the gospel. They heard it. They heard the gospel. They affirmed the gospel. They identified with the gospel, but they never really truly believed the gospel, and so there was no fruit of salvation that was ever produced. Their heart was unfruitful. Then there's the fourth response. And that is the spirit-prepared part. Verse 15. But the seed in the good soil. These are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. So Jesus speaks here of a... He speaks of a good heart. And again, let's just... Let's just qualify that with the rest of Scripture. The Bible says there is no one who does good. And we have hearts of stone, right? Before we were born again by the Spirit of God, there's nobody who can rightly be called good apart from the righteousness of Christ being given to them. So, so in the context of this parable, I think it's appropriate to say that the soil of this heart, why is it a good heart? Because it's been made ready. It's been made ready through the, for the gospel through the drawing of that individual and the regenerating power of the Spirit, and then that seed falls. And then no matter what happens in that life, it takes a firm root, and it will never die. A root emerges. It goes down into the Spirit-prepared heart such that it takes a firm and a solid root, and nothing, nothing of this world, nothing of this world hinders its growth, growth, and it results in fruit of true salvation. And what distinguish it, distinguishes it this way is that there is no falling away. They hold fast to the word they heard, meaning their faith. And along with the fruit of that faith, it perseveres all the way to the end, all the way into eternity, never goes away. And these are the ones who are truly saved. Or in the terms that Paul puts forward to the Colossians, they are truly reconciled to God. So we have four distinct responses to the Word of God. Each response to the Gospel was initially positive, greater, lesser degrees, right? First response was, let's just call it indifference, apathy. But the second and the third responses, they led to some sort of a profession of faith in Christ. But the key distinction is that only the last soil produced fruit, much fruit even it says, much fruit. And that fruit 
persevered. It lasted. It remained, and it remained permanently. That means that even though, even through seasons of sin, can the Christian sin? Oh, yes, he can. But even through those seasons of sin, that faith persevered. Even through seasons of doubt, can the Christian doubt? Oh, yes, he can doubt. You may be doubting here this morning, but actually be saved in Christ. You may be wondering, though, because you're doubting. The Christian can doubt. And these things, sin and doubt, they spiritually wreak havoc on your life to varying degrees, on your faith. But it remains. Christian sin, Christians doubt, Christians can get discouraged, Christians can get depressed. Oh, but their faith perseveres. Why? Because God has changed their very nature and saved them forever. In contrast, the other two, they don't continue. They fall away. And in the language of Colossians, they don't continue firm in the faith, established, steadfast. They moved away from the hope of the gospel for many and different reasons. Trouble, disillusionment, worldly distraction. But the point is, they fell away from their initial belief and they didn't return because that is the nature of false faith. It doesn't last. Now, another thing about false faith that we need to understand is that it can't always be identified or discerned by others. Second point, false faith can't always be discerned by others. In other words, distinguishing between these different responses to the gospel that Jesus talked about and, and detecting the presence or the absence of the fruit of salvation, well, that's just not always possible for you and me to do. We are not fruit inspectors. I think Jesus gives us the answer in his parable of the wheat and the tares, which we can read about in Matthew chapter 13. Go ahead and turn there, Matthew chapter 13. Jesus is going to guide us on this. Again, just let me summarize here. But I, you can have your eyes on the text, Matthew 24, or 13, 24 through 30 is the tares amongst the wheat here. And so a man sowed good seed in his field. Same same analogy of seed and soil and growth, right? So he sows this good seed in the field, but then an enemy comes in, sneaks in, sows weeds, tares are called, tares amongst the wheat. And Jesus says that the wheat represents the sons of the kingdom, men and women who are saved by faith in him. And then amongst them also are these tares who are sons of the evil one. So tares... If I'm sure you've all heard this a million times, right? Tares resemble wheat when they're young. You can't discern the difference. And so these are false believers, false teachers even, because if you look further up, he's really identifying teachers here, right? He's calling them... No, no, no. That, uh, I was thinking of something else in my mind here. So, so he's talking about false Christians. He's talking about false teachers as well. And they're in amongst the believers, so tares and wheat are side by side in churches. You've got genuine, born-again, spirit-filled Christians, and you've got professing Christians 
who are actually not Christians. And these false believers often lead, try to lead the others astray. Not intentionally, but just by letting what's really in their heart come out. It's not the church's job to find out and uproot these unbelievers. And that's in the, it's in the telling of the story because the difference between true and false faith, it isn't always obvious. And so what does that mean for a church in which there are very likely, and this is a church of our size, so I'm talking to all of us here, there are very likely tares amongst the wheat, false believers amongst genuine believers, and these false believers think they're genuine. So what is the church to do? What are we to do? I'm not going to come by. I'm going to, sh- you know, I'm not going to inspect your fruit. Here's what here's what the church does. They preach the gospel. They preach the gospel. They preach the gospel by which false believers are convicted by the Spirit. They repent and they believe. That's the number one thing that we're going to do. We're going to keep preaching the gospel. Haven't we moved on from the gospel? There's tares amongst the wheat, friends. These tares need to hear the gospel. But oh, but doesn't the gospel just stir you? Doesn't it stir you? Just as an aside, our home fellowship group went over the very day Beth went home to be with the Lord. We were in your house, weren't we, Ernie? Preached the gospel. Room full of believers. And I preached the gospel. Why? Because we're all thankful for this gospel by which we're saved. It's the gospel by which by which Beth, a sinner, could be forgiven and is now with the Lord. We preach the gospel, friends. That's what we do because that's the power of God for salvation. We use the word, though, also to gently correct and reprove and rebuke and exhort all professing believers regularly, right? And we call them to repentance when it's necessary. And we call them to, we call all of us here, regularly examine yourself. Examine your relationship with Christ. This is all that the church can do. Because the task of sorting the wheat from the tares, well, that ultimately belongs to God and that at the end of the age. You see, what I'm even doing right now, I'm not sorting, I'm exhorting. Because I don't want anyone in this congregation to find out at the end of the age that they've been a tear all along. Notice that those whom the angels gather from amongst the wheat, how are they characterized? Those who commit lawlessness. Those who commit lawlessness. This is likely a lawlessness that was perhaps not evident. A secret life of sin. Right? An ungrateful, complaining, joyless heart that you just carried with you wherever you went. And I say this, I say that it was likely unseen. Why? That this lawlessness was unknown. Why? Because a faithful church, if it was known, deals with it. A faithful church deals with sin and lawlessness and says, Brother, you need to repent. Nah, it's not a sin. Come over here. Does this brother need to repent? Yes, we need to repent. No. You guys are judgmental. Church, we have a brother 
who refuses to repent. We've appealed to him over and over and over again. He refuses to repent. He's in this sin. Pray for him. Speak to him. I'm leaving this church. Oh, God, we're sending this person out. He's acting like an unbeliever. So we need to treat him like an unbeliever. That's what the church does for unrepentant sin. People who will not listen to you when you in love are trying to appeal to them. Oh, people can mess this up. I've messed it up. You can mess up this process all, but, but the intention is there. You're in sin and you need to repent. Please repent. I want you on that last day to hear out. Depart from me, I never knew you. I want you to keep this lawlessness in mind. Okay, keep this lawlessness in mind as we look at the last thing to understand about false faith. So false faith is shown to be false because it doesn't last. It also can't always be discerned by others. And lastly, third, false faith is characterized by lawlessness. False faith is characterized by lawlessness. And this comes from the passage that I opened up with. The most sobering truth in the Bible, perhaps. Turn to Matthew 7. Matthew 7, beginning in verse 20. He says, You will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Who are the ones who enter? Enter his kingdom. The ones who do God's will. Now this sounds like the ones in Colossians who continue in faith firmly established. This is not only continuing in a belief, but, but that belief produces works in the life that are also resembling of faithfulness to God. So it's belief and works that identify you as a faithful, truly saved Christian. Now Jesus isn't teaching that doing the will of God is the basis on which you are made right with God. He's not saying that. It's not... It's not how you live that ultimately saves you, reconciles you, allows you to enter the kingdom of heaven. That is not what he is saying. He is not saying that. He is saying that those who will enter will be characterized by a life of doing the will of God. Do they obey perfectly? I'm saying this to those of you who are thinking, Oh, there's this sin in my life. Am I practicing lawlessness? I'm saying it characterizes your whole life whether other people know it or not. He's talking about sin that characterizes your life. But what he's saying is those who enter are characterized by a genuine, heartfelt desire and pursuit of doing the will of God. And they don't do it perfectly. They are the ones who, like David, sinned greatly. But their hearts were still after God. They, like David, grieve over regret confess their sin and then repent of it and start walking with God faithfully again. Maybe two steps down the road you stumble again. 
that's the Christian life, friend. So I don't want you just going, well, there's this sin in my life. Maybe I'm a false believer. Does that characterize you? I'm so, I understand it's difficult. Man, sins in the youth are... You, you tend to think half the time when you're young and professing Christ, it's like, God, just take me home. I just can't seem to stop sinning. So don't worry. I'm not trying to make you doubt your salvation. I'm trying to examine... I'm, I'm saying examine yourself. Does your heart desire to obey God? Do you hate it when you sin? Do you repent of it and come back to Him? And even though you return again sooner than you'd like, do you do the same all over again? you love Him? He's going to grow you. Because your faith is going to remain if you're His. And He's going to grow you and He's going to keep you and He saves you because He saves you forever. He's got a long time to work in you. Lord knows it took a long time for Him to work in me. See, these ones who Jesus will send away, who are these? He says there's these ones who practice lawlessness. Jesus is clearly speaking of those who not only profess to know Him, but they also believe that they know Him. They even profess belief that He's God. They're calling Him Lord. And more than that, they're involved in ministry. Hey, didn't we prophesy in your name? Remember that? Right? We cast out demons in your name? We performed a whole bunch of miracles. What are you talking about, man? Notice that Jesus says there's many, many who are like this. This is the word that's translated in it as multitude. The multitude that followed Jesus. And so this is shocking. It's shocking. Jesus is describing a vast multitude of people down through the ages of history who expect to hear well done, but instead we'll hear, depart from me. I never knew you. And they'll be shocked. But did God fool them? Did God pull the wool over their eyes? Or did they fool themselves? By going to church, singing the praises, and, and, and enjoying when other people were telling them, man, you're such a good Christian. You're such a good teacher of, of the Word. And yet all the while, that same individual was turning a blind eye. Or they were justifying the lawless way that they were living that nobody else seemed to know. Their speech condemned them. Their greed condemned them. Their hatred condemned them. Their unforgiveness condemned them. Their immorality condemned them. Here that Jesus and His apostles envisioned the reality that not everyone who says they are a Christian are actually saved. How many people have been told that they are now a Christian because they prayed the sinner's prayer? Did you know that saving a prayer doesn't save you, friend? Saying a prayer doesn't save you. No ritual prayers can save you. Not even if you were really crying hard when you prayed that prayer. How disgraceful. Church claiming to understand the gospel and the salvation that Christ made possible by His death on the cross, that they would allow salvation to be reduced to some cheap, 
formulistic approach that says if you just pray this prayer and you get baptized, well, you can live however you want to live because you have faith in your Savior. You've probably noticed. Have you noticed that we never have an altar call? We don't say, hey, can you dim the lights? Can we have someone playing some nice soft music here? Let's get the emotions just right. So that I can tell you why you need to come forward and receive Jesus. Now, do I think that people can get saved? Sure. But I think far too many are going to hear, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, because they believe that because they did that, they're saved. Christ knows how to save. And so we preach the gospel. That's the power of God for saved. Not the mood lighting, not the mood music, not the stand up and be counted. Not, I see that hand, I see that hand, your head's bowed, I see that hand. None of that saves you. Can you get saved that way? Yes. But it's risky, friends. That's why we don't practice it here. See, Americans want a gospel that they can easily profess and then go back to living however they want to live. Go back to whatever lifestyle they want to live. I want to hang out with whoever I want to hang out. I want to talk and act like the world. And I want to hang out with all these people. I want to have relationships with whoever I want. And I want to have fun and whatever I want. And then I'll come to church when I can and praise Jesus. And I'm going to heaven. See, this is lawlessness. And they know it. They think Jesus is just going to be okay with them. I'm on your team. I was on the ministry team. Come on, Jesus. Jesus. Hey, you know me. I don't know you. You never obeyed me. You lived the way you wanted to live. You obeyed when you wanted to obey. But ultimately, it was you doing what you wanted to do. Stop calling me Lord. I am Lord, but not your Lord. At least in your heart. I am your Lord, and you're bowing down because I am Lord. You weren't living like I was Lord. Some of these people in this, they're even false prophets. Meaning, people probably thought they were such great teachers of the Word. How can this be true? They taught the Word so well. Because they look just like Christians. They're terrors. And we can't discern it. What shows it? Lawless living. Behind the scenes. That maybe you and I didn't even know about. Let this be a warning, friends. It's not what you know that indicates if you're saved. It's how you live. Jesus said right there, He says, you will know them, in verse 20, you will know them by their fruits. It's how you live. And if your life is characterized by unrepentant lawlessness, whether known by others or not, you need to repent. And you need to come to Christ because you are not saved. Forget what others will think about you. Just forget what others will think about you. Think about what Jesus is going to say to you on that day. That's what needs to be filling your mind right now. Not, well, gosh, well, what will others think? I've, I've been a Christian here. I've been at this church for, for 15 years, and I can't say I'm not saved. Okay, you'd rather hear, depart from me? You who practice lawlessness? Don't be so foolish. Don't be so prideful as to let that get in the way of you actually coming to faith in Christ. Don't let that happen. Because you're not answering to your friends on Judgment Day. You're not answering to me on Judgment Day. You're answering to the Lord. In the 4th century, the Emperor Theodosius, 
He ordered the killing of 7,000 citizens of Thessalonica. And so Bishop Ambrose, he wrote to the emperor a letter. It was a severe rebuke. And he warned him. He said, don't even think about coming to the church to take communion. Don't even think about it. Your hands are stained with innocent blood. And so Theodosius, he came, came to the church in Milan. And Ambrose stood out front and would not let him in. And the emperor said, Ambrose, David, the man after God's own heart, he'd been guilty both of murder and adultery. And Ambrose replied, you have imitated David in the crime. Imitate him in in his repentance. Do you need to do the same, friend? Listen to how David repented of his sins. Oh, be gracious to me, O oh God. According to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. It's against you. Against you only. I've sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight so that you're justified when you speak. You're blameless when you judge. See, a faith that doesn't last and is characterized by lawlessness, ongoing sin that you may regret, but you ultimately, you justify it. And you ignore it. That is a false faith and it can't save you. These are words of love. Flee to Christ. Flee to Christ today. He's gracious. He'll receive you to Himself. He'll forgive you. He'll cleanse you. And as we'll look at when we come back next week, Lord willing, He will save you forever. Because He changes you forever. Let's pray. Oh God. This is why we talk about sin. Who wants to talk about sin? Do we want to be a church that talks about sin? No, we want to be a church that praises the grace and compassion and mercy of God. And we are that. But we can't do that without also talking about sin. Because of our hearts, God. You've told us they're deceitful. We have a Judas within our own heart. Kisses us at one moment. And then betrays us the next. That's our hearts. Oh, God, we know that we can kill sin. Only if we've been set free from it and have the Spirit of God living in us, we can kill this sin. Don't be discouraged. God, don't let your people here be truly discouraged. They may be fighting sin. Remind them that they can fight it because you're in them. And if anyone here is a false believer, God, they're a tear amongst the wheat. Don't let them escape your conviction. Don't let them be able to leave here continuing to justify their lawlessness that nobody else knows about. Don't let them continue. God, have mercy on them, please. Save them, truly save them, and change them. Give them new life in Christ. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.